We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Thank you. It reminds me years ago sitting on an aeroplane and uh, the pilot comes over the intercom and says, uh, welcome on board, this is the first time I've flown one of these aircraft. And you kind of hear that, <gasps> and then he says, today. <laughs> so I have to say, it's the first time I've preached in this church. <laughs> so, as Barney said, my name is Jeff Andrews. I've been here in this church since about April. You think, what? Why? Why only since April? Well, because I came to to Guildford uh, in January of this year. Uh, looked around at various churches and felt God calling me to commit myself to this church here. And I'm very pleased to be here to serve the Lord. So. Um, we are we're continuing this series of uh, stories. Um, I'm going to share something of my story, and uh, but we're also going to look at a story in the Bible. You know, it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege to preach, but it's also responsibility. I I take it seriously when James three one says, "Let there not be many teachers, because you shall bear the greater judgment." So there's a responsibility. Uh, and I don't take it lightly, but let's just pray and then we'll continue. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, we are expectant of you this morning that you will speak. Father, we pray that you would give us ears and minds and hearts to hear what you have to say. And thank you, Lord, you've got something to say to each one of us individually. So, Lord, we pray. Come amongst us and speak in Jesus' name. Um, can I just add to what Barney said about the, uh, the projector? Now, there are a couple of slides which I want you to be able to see. So if you, if you can't quite see, if you need to move forward, there's plenty of seats at the front. You know, there was, uh, when was it, one place where a meeting and all the front seats were empty? So what do you do? You just clear the front row. <laughs> and suddenly the people in the second row are on the front. Right. Where's my clicker? Here we go. Um, it was a few couple of weeks ago, uh, and I came across this testimony. There we go, if you can see that. Eugene Peterson uh, was a, uh, an American pastor, well-known American pastor, who died in... 2018 at the age of 86 um, and you may know the name Eugene Part uh, Peterson because if you know the the message there's a bible translation the message that was done by Eugene Peterson he wrote many other books as well um, and at his funeral his son Leif said that he his father had told him that really he'd conned people throughout his life because despite all of his books and all of his preaching, he really only had four messages in everything that he had said, everything he had written. And these are the four messages. God loves you. God is for you. God is coming after you. And he is relentless. 
So really that's what I want to explore a bit this morning. But even before I explored, can I just say to you, God loves you. You might want to say that to yourself because it's not God loves you plural. God loves you as an individual. You can say to yourself, not God loves us, but God loves me. And God is for me. And if you haven't quite got there yet, let me tell you that God is on your case. God is after you. One of the reasons you're here this morning is because God loves you and God is after you. And that final word, God is relentless. He does not take no for an answer. We're going to read an account in John's Gospel in a moment, uh, which I think illustrates some of this desire of God for you, that God is for you. But let me just tell you something of my own story. Um, I was not raised in a Christian family. I was taken to an Anglican church until I was about the age of 11. Um, and through circumstances that God organized, I came to be uh, confirmed in the Anglican church. And then that's when God got hold of me. Now, I've just forgotten one thing. Bibles. If you want a Bible, they're being handed out now. Here we go, one at the front. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that Bible is yours. Please hang on to it. Put your name in the front to take it home. Right. Age 13, I, I came to the Lord, and soon after that, God gave me a vision of working in food in Africa. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but that word, uh, that vision that God gave me, then directed my life. It, it directed my choice of university, and uh, I asked the Lord what I needed to do to, to work overseas, and that led me on to a further degree. And I kept on asking the Lord, when, when was I going to go? When would God open the door? And it wasn't until September 2005, so um, there was a couple in my church who had just come back from uh, Western Darfur in uh, Sudan uh, with a Swiss agency called Medair. And they were speaking about what they had done and where they were going to go next in Uganda. And God spoke to me that evening. He said, time to make it happen. And I didn't need any interpretation. I knew exactly what that meant. Uh, September 2005, uh, June 2006, I did Medair's kind of selection center. And uh, later that year, December 2006, I told my employer that I would be leaving within the next 12 months. And at the beginning of 2007, I sold my house. I still didn't have a job to go to. Nothing had been offered. I just knew this was where God was calling me. Uh, and I remember coming into the office in May 2007, and there was an email there to say, there's a position in northern Uganda. Uh, and so I left this country in... Uh, it was the 5th of November 2007 and went off to Uganda. And that was the beginning of 12 years outside of the country when God uh, gave me the privilege of working in humanitarian relief and development, so working with some of the, the world's poorest uh, in northern Uganda for a time in Indonesia, and then two and a half years in Congo. 
And then I had three years in Burundi, a little country just south of Rwanda. So if you know where the English, British government is trying to deport people, uh, refugees to Rwanda, just south of there is Burundi. It's a very small country, just like Rwanda. Uh, I was there for three years and then into the Netherlands for a couple of years. And then when I got to the Netherlands, I thought I'm not retiring to, to Europe, I haven't finished yet. God's put, got another international mission for me. So uh, 2018, I went off to South Sudan uh, for two years and then just arrived back in this country as we went into lockdown because I really felt that God was saying, okay, this is the, uh, the end of your international time and I came back to this country. I was in the Belfast for a year leading a small charity and then I came here um, in January. Amazing really because when I think that God called me when I was about 13, 14, somewhere around then, I can't give you a precise date, but it wasn't until I was what, 48 before I left the country. So 35 years, something like that, of God God's timing, what God was doing in me. Perhaps I could say, well, it, got, it, it took God that long to get me ready to go. Um, and in that sense, God is relentless. He didn't let go. I didn't let go of him either. I think God had put this so much in my heart that I kept on asking the Lord, when? When's it going to happen, Lord? And eventually God opened the door, for which I'm very thankful. It's been a a real joy to serve the Lord in that context. So, let's turn to the scriptures. If you've got your Bible, I'd like you to open it to John chapter 8. Um, and the story going to, we're going to read is only in John's Gospel. Uh, John was a very close disciple to Jesus. You know there are four Gospels. They're all written for slightly different reasons. Uh, Matthew was written predominantly for a Jewish audience, Mark written predominantly for a Roman or, or Latin-speaking audience, um, Luke was written predominantly for a Greek audience, but John, John wrote it predominantly to uh, demonstrate the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so when we read John, let's just remember we're actually reading eyewitness accounts of what happened. These aren't myths or fables. There's somebody who saw, was part of the event, and wrote it down for our uh, understanding. So here we go. We're going to read the story in John chapter 8. And we're going to read the first 12 verses. It's tiny up there, isn't it? So let me read it from my notes. And I'm reading from the, King, uh, the New King James Version. John chapter 8 and verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this testing him that he might have something, they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So 
So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke for them again, to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When we read the scripture, it's very important to think about the context of what's happening. Who is speaking? When is he speaking? What is the context? Who is hearing? And what do the hearers what were the hearers have understood? Sometimes it's quite easy to uh, give a 21st century understanding to a story, which isn't there actually because it was different 2,000 years ago. Um, so as we go through this story, I want to um, set it in the context and explain who it was that was speaking, to whom, who was there, what was happening. So, um, it tells us, starts off, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Clearly something has been happening before because you don't normally start a story with, but somebody went to the Mount of Olives. So, if you look in John chapter 7, you find that Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem and to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three great feasts, and uh, all men were required to go up to the tabernacle, up to Jerusalem, three times a year. If you want a reference for that, you'll find it in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 16. They had to go up to Jerusalem, and it's an eight-day festival. Uh, and we also read in John chapter 7 that on the great day of the festival, it's the time when Jesus tells the disciples that uh, out of your belly will come rivers of living water. That's a great day. But, and Jesus has come up to the festival at the beginning. He would have done. He was an observant Jew. And it tells us that in the middle of the festival, he goes up into the temple and starts teaching the people. And very soon, the local authorities are getting angry with him. And it tells us that they're looking for opportunity to put him to death. Now, we're just thinking about where it is in Jesus' ministry. You know, we know that Jesus had a public ministry for three years. When you read John's Gospel... You, you realize that certainly from uh, chapter 12 onwards, we're in the last week of his life. So the first 11 chapters are covering nearly three years. I suspect that this uh, event that we're looking at was probably going to happen in October. That's when the Feast of Tabernacles was. And 
Jesus is looking forward to the crucifixion probably only eight or nine months later. So that's where I'm going to position this. This is a Feast of Tabernacles, which is in October, and I suspect it's in the last year of Jesus' life. The Feast of Tabernacles is still celebrated today. You may know um, of the word Sukkot. So if you're in Israel or in a, a Jewish community, they will be celebrating Sukkot uh, in the middle of October. And uh, Feast of Tabernacles, is what they do is construct a, um, a shelter out of branches and um, leaves. Uh, and the most observant will actually go and live in that shelter for the week of, of Tabernacles. Um, and it's a festival when people celebrate God's provision as they brought, brought them through the wilderness and uh, as something of a harvest festival as well. So it's celebrating God's goodness. Now, the consequence of that is that Jerusalem is busy. All the males of Israel have come up to Jerusalem and there have been thousands and thousands of sacrifices because they all had to bring an animal for sacrifice. There's also been a lot of eating. The sacrifice, part of it was burned, a lot of it was eaten. And as I said, Jesus comes up in the middle of that feast and starts teaching. And at the end of John chapter 7, it tells us that after Jesus had finished uh, a particular discourse and people were annoyed with him, most of them went home. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, we use the word mount. Uh, it's not a mountain. It's a hill outside of the main city of Jerusalem. Now, you probably can't see that very well. I was hoping you'd see that a bit better. But you may recognize um, a bit of the picture. That photograph is, is taken from the Mount of Olives. So you're only half an hour walk to the temple. And between yourself, the Mount of Olives, and uh, the temple, there's a valley. And on the other side of the valley are the walls of the Temple Mount. Now, if you go there, what you're looking at are not the walls that Jesus knew, because they were all destroyed in AD 70. So when you go to Jerusalem, you look at these wonderful walls. They were built by the Turkish occupiers, the Ottoman Empire, in the middle of the 16th century. Nevertheless, it gives us perspective of how far Jesus was away when it says he goes to the Mount of Olives. And uh, if you can see vaguely in the middle is the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim um, mausoleum. And that's roughly where the temple would have been. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, probably can see the temple. It's only about maybe a mile and a bit away. You go down into the valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, and up into, uh, into the Temple Mount. So, Jesus goes on to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, obviously you can think that it's a, an area with olive groves. Um, and Jesus went there. Did he sleep in the open? We don't know. Um, it was an entry into Jerusalem, so there are probably lot, <coughs> lodges along the way. Uh, it's October, it's in the hills, it's a bit cold at night, so you probably don't want to be sleeping out in the open. And then it tells us in uh, verse 2, Now early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So it's early in the morning. Uh, what does that mean in the context? Um, 
Well, dawn is about 6.30 in the morning, so it wouldn't have been much earlier than that. But at first light, Jesus goes into the temple. Uh, and we'll talk about it in a moment, just about where in the temple it might have been. Because it, it says the temple, but it actually means the temple precinct. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, if this was a Jewish uh, um, preaching... You would all stand up now because the preacher sat. <laughs> so what it says there is, is uh, accurate in the contemporary way in which Jesus would have taught. He sat down and taught them. Um, and in the midst of his discourse... There you go. Just think about where he is in the temple. I just wanted to show you this. So, um, if you go to Jerusalem, there's this wonderful uh, scale model of Jerusalem, Jesus' day, and the, there's a good model of the temple there. Now, if again, if you can see that, in the middle of that is the temple, the, the Holy of Holies. Um, where only the priests could go. And just in front of that was the court of the women, where Jewish women could go. And then around that was the court of the Gentiles, where anybody could go. Uh, and it tells us in Acts chapter 5, actually, that they gathered in Solomon's porch, or Solomon's colonnade, which was a covered area that was on, you can, in this photograph, on the left-hand side and across the back of the temple precincts, there were covered areas. I think this story is taking place in the court of the Gentiles in that covered area. He wanted covered areas because it's, you know, unlike England, having hot sun outside is, is normal. <laughs> uh, so I think this is where it's happening. Um, so just in our context, we talk about the temple. We're talking here about the temple precinct and in the court of the Gentiles where Jesus is teaching. He's gathered a, a crowd around him. And while he is speaking... It tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees burst in on the scene and they're dragging a woman with them. Now again, scribes and the Pharisees, who are these people? The scribes were originally people who literally were the scribes. They copied out the scriptures. No printing press. So if he wanted a copy of the Torah or any of the prophets, it had to be written out by hand. The scribes were the people who did that, but because they spent their time in the scriptures copying them, they also became the experts and they became the lawyers. They're the ones who knew uh, the detail of the Jewish scriptures. The Pharisees were the professional Jews. They were the one who they, tried, they spent their life being observant to the law, believing that being observant of all the laws and the traditions uh, would bring them to salvation. And it's they that bring a woman early in the morning into the presence. You can just imagine there's a, it's a perhaps it's a bit like this. Jesus is sat teaching a group of people and from the side somebody bursts in. There's a bunch of men shouting and hollering and they're dragging a woman who may well have been screaming out of fear. 
and they come and stand before Jesus and say, well, now, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? What does it tell us? Um, they brought her and set her in the midst. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned to death. But what do you say? Adultery was, of course it's in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, but adultery was also carried a death sentence. Um, but Jewish law of the day was very clear that you couldn't just accuse somebody of adultery. It required eyewitness evidence that this person was guilty of that sin. And then Deuteronomy 17 tells us that if anybody was going to be brought for a capital um, offence, it required at least two eyewitnesses. So these men are dragging this woman in, and amongst them are at least two eyewitnesses of actually seeing this person committing adultery. You just think, that's crazy. That sounds like a setup. And even more when you think the man wasn't there. And again, Deuteronomy 17 tells us that the man and the woman would be equally um, culpable. And stoning was the death sentence. So they dragged this woman in. Now you just think, what's going on in the head of this woman as well? She knows... She never protests her innocence. So she knows that the sentence, the potential death sentence, it's a real possibility. But she's been dragged in by this baying group of men. And they're testing Jesus. Why is that? Because they're saying to Jesus, right, are you going to follow the law of Moses and agree with us that this woman needs to be stoned to death? Or... Are you going to recognize that we as Jews don't have that authority in our nation at the moment? Because they were under Roman occupation. And only Rome could give permission for the death sentence. If you remember the story of when Jesus is presented, he's asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's exactly the same situ situation. Are you going to obey Jewish law or are you going to come under Roman law? Uh, and in both situations, Jesus doesn't respond directly to the question. So this woman is, is in front of him, and they're testing him. What is he going to see, do? And then we read in verse 6 that he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, I don't know, maybe when these people burst in on the scene, maybe Jesus stood up from speaking. And it says, tells us now that he now stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. We've no idea what he was writing. Maybe he was sat down. We don't know. But maybe he was sat down and he just bent down and started doodling on the ground or writing something. But he was not going to engage with these people who were accusing this woman. They kept on nagging him. What are you going to say then, Jesus? Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, eventually he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down 
and wrote on the ground. Now, Deuteronomy 17 tells us that in any um, capital offence, the first person to cast a stone were to be the eyewitnesses. And then everybody else would throw, throw a stone. It was a, it was a community sentence, but who starts? It's the one who is the eyewitness to the crime. So he, bio, he bends himself down again and waits to see what will happen. He who is without sin amongst you, let him throw a stone for first. Who's the one person who's qualified to throw that stone? Jesus. He was the one without sin. He, he was qualified to throw that stone. Of course, he was an eyewitness, but he knew what was in the woman. And then it tells us that then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. The most senior, the oldest amongst them, must have been challenged by what Jesus said. Him, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And there they must be thinking, they're scribes, remember, scribes, lawyers and Pharisees, very religious people. And they must be thinking, yeah, he's right. I'm not without sin. I'm very conscious of my, my guilt, my sin. So that gradually they drift away. And after some minutes, they've all gone. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, it says Jesus was left alone and standing in the midst. I think the posse had gone, but the people who was teaching were still there. They hadn't disappeared. There were other people watching on in this event. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It was unusual in Jesus' day for a man to talk to a woman in any context. And here's Jesus addressing a woman. Not only a woman, but a woman who is, by her own admission, guilty of sin. She didn't protest her innocence, did she? She didn't say it wasn't me. She's got eyewitnesses who've brought her. She knew she was guilty. But nobody has condemned her. And Jesus looks at her and says... Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus knew what had happened. He knew the reality better than the witnesses, that posse of men who had brought her in front of Jesus. But he looks and says, Neither do I condemn you. He doesn't say, don't go and commit adultery again. He says, go and sin no more. It's a high st 
standard, isn't it? Go and sin no more. An impossible standard, really. Uh, and she knew it. She knew it was not possible to live without sin. It was a big challenge. How do we relate that to ourselves? If you look at Jesus, he doesn't condemn you either. He does say to you, go and sin no more. How is that possible? Well, I think this was probably around about October, nine months before, eight months before Jesus died. And then we come to Pentecost 40 days after with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that was the time when Ezekiel's prophecy of a new heart was fulfilled. Let me just read that. Because Jesus is looking forward to this day. When he says, go and sin no more, I think he's looking forward to this day. When I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, in you and I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. He says to, you, says to this woman, go and sin no more. And he says to us, repent and believe. My standard is you sin no more. Now that's not possible until you receive a new heart and a new spirit, which was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. Let's just finish these scriptures and I want to have a bit of time of reflection. It finishes in verse 12 with perhaps words which don't seem to follow on, but let me just explain why he says this. Then Jesus spoke to them, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, in the way that, when you read that, you think, what's the connection? But then when you understand that in the, in, the, in Jesus' day, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, they put in huge lights, menorah, oil lights in the court of the women, so just outside the temple. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, that precinct would have been flooded with light. And that's what they would have understood when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's saying that that light is temporary. That light is imperfect, but I am the true light. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And that light of life is that exhortation that I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. Let's think about ourselves. God knows what you have done, and he knows what you have not done. He knows the things that you've buried deep inside. 
He knows the things you're ashamed of. He knows the things that you have never admitted to anybody yourself, anybody but yourself. Perhaps he knows the things that you have done your best to forget. And he invites each one of you to bring all of your failings, all of your regrets, all of your guilt to him. Because he does not condemn you. He wants to take all of those issues and forgive you and heal you and cleanse you. God is relentless. He is for you and he loves you. Just like this woman who was taken in adultery, guilty. She knew she was guilty. She feared being stoned to death. But Jesus looked at her and said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And he looks at each one of us and says, I don't condemn you, but this is the standard I want you to work to. Go and sin no more. God is relentless. I'm going to tell you just a little story of God about God's relentlessness. I said I was not brought up in a Christian family. My father, a long time ago, my father was born in 1909. He died in 84, a long time ago. Um, and he probably went to a primitive Methodist church as a young man, but he rejected God. He didn't walk with the Lord for most of his life. He was a Freemason, which is definitely an anti-Christian, let's call it a cult. And um, my mother died when I was 19. He was getting on for 70 at the time, and he absolutely rejected the notion that there was a good God. How can good, a good God take my, my wife away from me? Um, and about four years later, he went into heart failure. He was about he was 75 then. Um, and about 10 days later, he gave his life to the Lord. And 10 days later after that, he went to glory. I wonder what happened between himself and the Lord when he was you know, a young man, yeah, very young man, in that church, which he completely rejected. Freemasonry is a rejection of Jesus. He deliberately rejected God when my mother died. But God was relentless and wouldn't let him go. And eventually got hold of him just before he died. God is relentless and he will not give up. Maybe you've been running away. May you be you, maybe you've been saying no. But God will not take no for an answer. So we're just going to take a moment. I want you to just, this is your personal time, just to close your eyes and think of those things that you'd rather forget, things where you feel guilty, things where you've let yourself down, maybe you let others down. Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And now just think about the things that you'd like to be different. Perhaps a relationship that needs healing, a sense of guilt that needs lifting. Present that to the Lord. Because God 
loves you. God is for you. Maybe you've discovered this morning that God is after you. And he is relentless. He will not let go. Jesus said to that woman, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. And Jesus says to you, nor do I condemn you, but come. Come and receive from me a new heart, a new spirit, and live in the light. Live in my presence. Live a life which is pleasing to me. Father, we thank you that you do love us. And Lord, we can say, each one of us, we can say, God loves me. And Lord, thank you that you are for us. You look at us and you love us and you want to address the issues in our lives. You are for us. We can say to ourselves, God, you are for me. And Lord, we thank you that you have been after each one of us. You came after me. I didn't looking, go looking for you, but you found me. And in a sense, Lord, you come looking for me every day because you want more of me. You want more of me. You want more of me. Because you want to give more of yourself to me, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you are relentless. You will not give up. You will not take no for an answer. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Amen. So let's just perhaps just take away those four thoughts as we go into the week. That God loves you. That God is for you. That he's after you. That he's relentless. That's for you for your family, for your friends, for those for whom you pray for, you can pray because God loves you. God loves that person. He's for that person. He's after that person. And God is relentless. Amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.